0: Hi, this is Bobcat Goldblake. You're listening to Tomano. Well, actually, you're listening to me talk
1: right now. By the way, I'm not dead. The Mike Tomano Happening. Welcome to the latest episode of the Mike Tomano Happening. Thank you so much, uh, subscribers, listeners. And remember to share and visit Mike Tomano, M-I-K-E-T-O-M-A-N-O.com for my blogs, some radio archive stuff, and uh, other fun. So, uh, yeah, here we go. Last Wednesday, uh, a week ago tomorrow, I arrived at the radio station right before dawn, probably 15 minutes before 5, and I noticed that my nose, as I got from the car to the door of the studios my nose was runny and shortly thereafter i you know started my show and the first hour i pretty much do solo rob comes in in the six o'clock hour stays with me for a couple hours doing various you know benchmark uh things that we do each day and conversations but i visited the bathroom and uh, because we drink so much coffee, I go to the bathroom like every hour with my parakeet-sized bladder. And I, when I was in the washroom, I lapsed into a sneezing fit. So, you know, I'm concerned. I'm compassionate. And I told Rob that, hey, I don't know if I got a cold going on here, but keep your distance. And when our manager arrived mid-show, Tammy, I asked her to give me a COVID test. Of course, 15 minutes later, it comes back positive. So I cleaned the studio, gathered my staff, or g- gathered my stuff. My staff stayed on and uh, headed home. And Rob tested negative because uh, he's Vulcan. Just for those of you who may wonder, he's immune to mere human diseases. And I shouldn't say that. See, I have jinxed him. But so the last week I've spent in the north end of my home... It's my bedroom, which attaches to my library and recording studio, and then there's a bathroom here. So within that triumvirate of rooms, I've been sequestered since last week. My wife and daughter leaving medicine, vitamins, meals, water, ginger ale, warm wishes, and love you dads at the door. And my beloved feline, Buttercup, who's actually laying next to me on the floor here. Well, she's laying on the floor. I'm sitting on a chair. But she's constantly at my side. Love her so much. So we snuggled, and I gave her plenty of belly rubs and head tweaks. Good name for a band. And, uh, you know, she just purred in blissful content, and I brushed her every day because, you know, she loves to go to the uh, feline hair salon. So that was fun. Uh, You know, I made the most of it. I grabbed a few books, some Orson Scott card books, the Ender series that my daughter brought home from the library that I'm dipping into. And I continued on some books that I've been reading for a while. And I binged on YouTube videos, really bad uh, Italian horror movies and such. And some of the channels that I visit, um, checked up on them. I played a lot of Words with Friends online, which is the internet version of Scrabble, if you didn't know. And, you know, phone calls from friends uh, provided welcome interruptions to the monotony of reading, sleeping, internet surfing, taking meds, feeling like crap, and uh, carrying on through COVID round two. One film that I did catch was uh, I pulled The Dark Knight Rises out of my collection of Blu-rays and DVDs. Christopher Nolan's 2012 finale of the Batman trilogy that he put together, which I love, especially the Dark Knight, the 2008 middle entry, that remains a favorite of mine. And, you know, as is the case with many folks, the consensus is that Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker was just, you know, incredible, knocked it out of the park. And the Dark Knight Rises is a bigger more spectacular film and it keeps the momentum going from the start now there's an awful lot of plot going on and I like it but it it did border unlike the other two films uh, The Dark Knight and Batman Begins it bordered on that Hollywood script meddling you know there's uh, some superhero movie cliches that kind of turn me off that's why I, I shun Marvel films you know, there's quirky quips and dialogue and an over-reliance on mega special effects and speedy editing. And it's it stops short of overuse. But, you know, for this viewer, those things stand out. But I will uh, revisit Batman Begins soon. Overall, The Dark Knight Rises is a thoroughly entertaining film. And Anne Hathaway, man, she steals every scene she's in. She just kills it. So on this week's episode, we're going to introduce the panel. This is a group of passionate, intelligent a uh, diverse variety of friends and colleagues who will add to our occasional geek out editions of the program. There are several game changer episodes planned with a new guest for each one. So, on today's program, we're discussing the game chamber concept in the works of music, film, and book form that have altered our tastes, changed our views, and impacted the way that we listen to music or watch movies or read books. And mind you, each of our panelists have been informed that these selections do not necessarily reflect our personal favorites. These are just the works of artists that caused us to reevaluate how we look at a particular medium that they represent. So I'll start uh, my first one in this first edition of the Game Changer series. And you're welcome to uh, send me yours. You can go to uh, mtamano at Hotmail and send me your lists. And uh, you could also hit me up on social media and copy them down. But um, I have to point to the album Zappa and the Mothers, June 21st, 1971. June 21, 1971. That discovery came around the age of 10. You know, I was a rock music fanatic, avid collector and listener. And my record collection at that time was primarily Kiss, Sweet, UFO, Pink Floyd, Rush, and, you know, assorted arena rockers of the era and as I've mentioned before my neighbor and dear childhood friend Mora, she lived across the street and she was the youngest in the large Irish Catholic Kennedy family her three older sisters and three older brothers they all had their own wonderful record collections that Mora and I would delve into all the time I mean we loved listening to records discussing records buying magazines about music And just, uh, we couldn't get enough. And, you know, I heard the Grateful Dead and Joni Mitchell and New Riders of the Purple Sage and Hot Tuna and Rick Derringer and Rory Gallagher and just a bunch of legendary artists and music that just, you know, I just consumed with passion, still do. And her older brother, Maura's older brother, TJ, was my personal musical guru. And he would often lend me records to listen to. You know, we'd listen to records with him and then he'd say, hey, take this home and listen to it. And I, I remember the first time he lent me uh, Hawkwind's Epic Space Ritual album. And it's like it was like a science fiction movie set to music. Just a complete mind blow. And you know, the Beatles discography, of course, that was a staple of our listening. And we'd listen to Stones, Kinks, Faces albums. It was a rock and roll wonderland for a young boy. And one day, I spied a crudely decorated album cover by Zappa and the Mothers, with the date June 21, 1971, scrawled across a plain white cover. And listening to it was unlike anything I had heard before. It was mind-twisting musicianship, of course, coming from Zappa and company. And it had a centerpiece called The Mud Shark with two men, Flo and Eddie, who I would later discover were the same, you know, clean-cut popsters that fronted the Turtles, who I was well aware of. And Flo and Eddie recalled this, they played the characters recalling this obscene event with a groupie who longed to hear their their hit single and so much that she, you know, acquiesced to being violated with a mud shark and various other things. So the album was a game changer because it introduced me to comedy and rock music. Now, mind you, this was no Hello Mudda, Hello Fada or Monster Mash. This was surreal and profane and forbidden territory and the idea of marrying adult comedy and rock music continued to be an interest for me and later on when Chicago radio personality Steve Dahl had a string of bizarre song parodies with his band Teenage Radiation my sensibilities then were keen to uh, hear the similarities and obviously Zappa was a an influence on Steve and that was vindicated and boy it's weird that I remember this shit in an early 80s uh, episode of Steve Dahl and Gary Meyer's radio show which I listened to religiously every day I would get home from school they were on in the afternoon and I would listen and Steve started a song or, or wrote a song called I'm a Wimp and he was playing it it was original composition and someone mentioned that reminded him of you know Valley Girl from Frank Zappa and Steve mentioned well you know Zappa was a great influence, of course. And there were other things that I noticed, little nuances in Steve's music that pointed to uh, the Flo and Eddie days when they were with the mothers. But this Game Changer had such an impact on me that when I put together my own song parody band in the late 90s, Tamanasaurus, we played a bunch of sold-out clubs, and it was a mixture of comedy, music, sketch, Characters. It was just awesome. And I would cite this record to the band members as a template for what I was shooting for, the vaudevillian rock motif that I was seeking. On to books. The book that I'll list first in the Game Changers was Hunter Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And by the time I had read it in high school, I mean, it was talked about in legendary terms. And the book is an example of Thompson's Gonzo style of journalism and writing that propelled him to stardom, you know, in, in Rolling Stone magazine and beyond. And it was journalism done in a diary style with depictions of his outlandish antics and surreal drug-induced visions interspersed with narrative. And what it showed me was the reality of prose that mix fiction with fact and that's a grand mixture when done properly and a couple of standout passages come to mind i pulled my battered copy of fear and loathing in las vegas from the bookshelves and here's one that kind of gives an example of what i'm talking about hallucinations are bad enough but after a while you learn to cope with things like seeing your dead grandmother crawling up your leg with a knife in her teeth most acid fanciers can handle this sort of thing, but nobody can handle that other trip. The possibility that any freak with a $1.98 can walk into the Circus Circus and suddenly appear in the sky over downtown Las Vegas, 12 times the size of God, howling anything that comes into his head. No, this is not a good town for psychedelic drugs. And here's another one. Every now and then, when your life gets complicated and the weasels start closing in, The only cure is to load up on heinous chemicals and then drive like a bastard from Hollywood to Las Vegas with the music at top volume and at least a pint of ether. So, you know, Thompson injected humor, surrealism, and he had this conversational tone that invited the readers to, as he would say, buy the ticket and take the ride. His word choices were grotesque, psychotic poetry. And Hunter S. Thompson taught me that if it's worth saying... It's worth saying with rich detail. It's worth saying with due exaggeration and unbridled honesty, whether it's fact or fiction. So Hunter Thompson was and is important to me. My run-in with him is legendary, and it's been retold multiple times in print and on air, and it can be approached on a different day perhaps. But in keeping with our game-changer theme, He remains a source of inspiration and a self-destructive locomotive of a man whose work touched me deeply and merits revisitation often. Any aspiring writer would do very well to study Thompson's wildly creative prose. He uh, said important things in a unique way. And for films, there's so many milestones, so many game changers. One standout is 1973's The Paper Chase, directed by James Chase, starring Timothy Bottoms, the lovely Lindsay Wagner, and John Houseman, the legendary actor. Now, I saw this film in 1982 in a high school film class. It was an elective class that really had a lasting impression on me. The class teacher, Mr. Ed Dudek, was a film aficionado who introduced us to great movies, and we analyzed them, and we studied uh, film composition, camera angles and script writing was really an awesome class and it was taught by a very passionate man and it also taught us all the artistry of storytelling in whatever medium one chooses he was a great teacher and so in researching this episode i thought maybe i'd have him on the program to talk about that but i discovered he passed away in 2013 but our shared enthusiasm of film spilled over into discussions outside of the classroom Anyhow, one of the movies that he showed us was The Paper Chase, and that really blew me away, and I believe it was the first non-genre movie that swept me up. It was a simple story of a Harvard Law student at odds with his instructor, whose daughter he happened to be falling in love with. And before that, I chose movies based on my personal genre interests, horror and science fiction being paramount, gangster and cop stories, westerns, The Paper Chase is a gem from the 70s. It's, a, for me, a golden decade of cinema, and uh, that remains one that I would highly recommend to anyone who loves a good story, and uh, especially a good love story, a really good character study. So let's visit with our first member of the Mike Tamanos Show Happening panel. (laughs) Marty J. Man of Numbers. Handyman. Friend of the Devil, part-time vegan. So first up from the panel is Marty J, my childhood friend beyond friend. He's like a brother to me, and uh, he's been with me through ups and downs. And he's a constant uh, source of inspiration and support. And welcome to the Mike tomato happening, Marty.
0: Um, hi there, Mike. How are you today?
1: Well, you know, I'm dealing with the uh, with the Rona my second mm-hmm. my second batch, because it was so fun the first time, I thought I'd get it again.
0: Exactly.
1: And this is the first day out of uh, the last f- four or five. This is the fifth day since my diagnosis, and uh, this is the first day that I felt like I have enough energy to chat a little bit, and I wanted to get a podcast together. Good. So today There's we're talking there. about game changers in film, music, and books. And, you know, as I've prepped all you guys not necessarily our favorites but just stuff that changed the way that we read books or changed our view of the mediums the particular mediums you know the films that we watch and uh the music we listen to so we'll start out with music so you know you you and i grew up we were we were into the bands that our older brothers and sisters were into and we were we were always seeking new stuff and the album oriented rock of the day ruled supreme you know there was queen and there was black sabbath and as we went we rifled through your older brother's bedroom we found you know stuff like the tigers of pantang
0: hustler magazine hustler
1: yeah. ma- <laughs> hustler magazines yes which as you're listening to a jag panzer album it's always okay. nice to you know rouse the beaver hunt of the month
0: oh, what was that gentleman's name uh Chester and the Molester. Those cartoons are always
1: outstanding. Always great. You know, that's the one thing that's neglected. When we look back at the history of Hustler magazine, Larry Flint, the great champion of free speech. The and speech. Exactly. Just an American icon. The humor in that magazine. They actually had a, uh, a separate, you know, magazine, Hustler fantastic. humor. Hustler humor was fantastic. Standard. And uh you could only look at so much spread eagle before you're like okay I get it and and then you look into you know with just scathing uh humor that oh, he was oh, just amazing yeah. Absolutely amazing He was
0: truly a first amendment icon um always felt that
1: Yeah he seemed like a nice guy too a little bit a little bit twisted but you know aren't we all So we would we would be listening to records and our moms had, were rock and rollers too of course yes. I I first heard the great Jethro Tull uh, 50s pastiche album, Too Old to Rock and Roll, Too and Young Rolling to Die, borrowing Stones. it from your mother, and uh, that was fantastic. And you borrowed a certain... What was the album that I gave you from my mom's It was collection?
0: Tattoo You. It was Tattoo You by Rolling Stones.
1: Rolling Stones Tattoo You, which, you know, yeah. bringing it full circle to Hustler, had the great Keith Richards composition, Little T and A on it. Yes. So we had that to well, enjoy. True,
0: and, and by the way, um, I remember when your mother had passed, I remember walking up to you because at that point my mother had passed years earlier your mother obviously had just passed and i remember the first thing i walked up to you and said i go well i guess it's too late to return our ch- each other's mother's album <laughs>
1: right i think i still have your mom's too old to rock and roll you do you do it's a you good album <laughs> moms weren't as you know. Our moms would buy records and listen to them. They weren't as adamant about getting them back. They were like, whatever, you know. They bought them because it was like a it was a fluke. Oh, I think I'll buy the new Rolling Stones album. Yes. Yeah, but so you know, as you and I've gone through, we become musical fanatics, and we love art, and you know. my lifestyle is one of constant uh, creativity and fun. And I'm always looking for inspiration. And so I've surrounded myself in my life with delving into works of art, whether they're literary, whether they're uh, film music, uh, paintings, whatever, wherever I could find inspiration, I do. And you uh, for all intents and purposes are a professional. And so you, you, this is kind of uh, been a something that you've delved into outside of your career. Right. Yeah. So I want to go back to uh, we'll go back to albums and the album, because like I said, we grew up with regular radio and, and delving into yep. different records that our sisters and brothers had and the older kids in the neighborhood and some stuff stuck and some stuff we just made fun of. but we were music fanatics. And so what was the album that, you know, we're listening to kiss. We're listening to queen. We're listening to heavy metal records. What was this? What was the album that made you go? Oh, this is a new way to do it. This is something different. I'm listening different now.
0: Um, And, and, and as we had talked earlier, I chose essentially three. Okay. And I don't have to get to, and I don't want to get to, I, I can skim the surface of these, but I think you would, possibly get it you know based off of my three um understanding that you know when we were younger um we just kind of just went through them you know, you go back when we were preteens, you know 10 11 12 we were just essentially we, we weren't just starting out but we were just trying to play catch-up if you will right and you know we you know i was raised on the beatles and i was raised on bill withers and things of that nature with my older siblings. And right. Yes, and stuff like that. So he kind of got, I don't want to say ruts, but I kind of got through that stuff, and I was trying to play catch-up in a lot of cases. For that reason, I didn't listen to the Beatles until 30 years later. I said, you know what, I'm done. I'm not going to go back and listen them many years later. So I preface this with saying the albums that I've selected, there are no Beatles on there, even though, it was you know, they've always been... Pretty much my favorite band,
1: right? They were uh, ubiquitous in our.
0: Ubiquitous, exactly. That's the exact word I was going to use. ubiquitous. They and bands like Public Image Limited, as you also know, was my absolute favorite. One of my absolute favorites. Also not on this list. Um, Really? uh, Yes, believe it or not, but close though. You and you'll know which album I'm talking about. I say it's close because I, whilst they're some of my favorites, I think I was cemented. it was in my head how stuff was working and. Whilst they were my favorite songs and favorite compositions, right? To me, it was nothing. I do say new. The sound was new. The creation was new. But it wasn't one of those things where it's like, wow, I've never heard it done like this before.
1: Yeah, yeah. Still, we, were, we were kind of we were we were already down that rabbit hole by the time Public Image Limited came out. We knew it was interesting and different and innovative. But we right. were prepped for it. And going right. back to you know, even though we were young, we were constantly on discovery. Like you pointed out, it was almost fleeting it's like we would hear an album and say oh yeah that's cool we consumed it okay now it's part of my thing and then we'd go on and like and we were still snarky enough at 10 and 9 and 10 and 11 years old to go through your brother's album collection when we saw the vandenberg one with the sharks flying through the desert we could still laugh and say that's stupid it's stupid yeah
0: in spite of the fact that adrian vandenberg not a bad musician
1: not a bad musician no
0: no, he's actually a good musician. I'll give him credit.
1: Yeah, but well, even but back then we were just too hip hokey. for the room at nine.
0: Too damn hip. It was that was hokey though. Yes, yeah, it was. So on that note, and and like I said, although quick note on Pill, the concept of how Pill was created that was a changer for me. The concept of the band.
1: A public image so limited. Yeah.
0: Yes, not so much the albums that you listen to, not the albums that created, even though album is one of my absolute top five albums of all time. I didn't put it on this list. Yeah. Um, but it was the concept of how they were created and how they operated through the first half of their career, I thought was brilliant.
1: You know what's because funny about Public Image Limited? You and I have seen them together twice and you've seen them multiple times. I'm trying to remember there was a time when I met a girl at a party and I asked mm-hmm. you, was that Susie and the Banshees or was that Public Image Limited that we took her to? Susie. It would have
0: been Susie. Yeah. I
1: didn't go and see Susie with you, but that's, so,
0: you saw Susie with that other young lady.
1: Yeah, and uh, I still don't remember her name. And that night, I remember yeah. saying to you, Marty... What is her name? And you said I don't, know. I don't know. She just said hi to me when you introduced me, and yeah. at some point I had forgotten her name. Right, and I had to go through the whole night dropping her off and saying, "I hope you had a nice night with us." And she said, "Oh, it was wonderful, and uh, I hope to see you again." And I remember having her number in my wallet without it, without her name on it, and. Oops. So I couldn't call her again because I didn't know who to ask for. But yes, it was right. Susie in the bantries and not Public Image Limited. But
0: you and yes. I and your you and I and your longstanding girlfriend went and saw a Public Image in
1: 1986. Oh yeah, who was my longstanding? Was that uh, Lisa? Mm-mm. Pre, pre Lisa, the- pre Lisa. I can't even remember. Oh, Michelle. It was Michelle. Yes, it oh, was. Oh boy, did I she fuck that up. Yes. Well, that was yeah. just a, a, when I say that, I mean, that's a long line of, uh, you know, a, one in one in a line of it many. Was the first, yes. You know, I, the first. I had a great string of fuck-ups. Well. But back to you.
0: But no, that was, we did see Public Image 1986. It was, uh, it was just after the album, album, came out.
1: Look at you with the mind of, uh, steel trap. You remember and a date. And lo and
0: behold, on that note. Yes. Stated the, the concept of the rotating members. Yeah the men on that performed with him on that stage that night, whilst they were not on that album,
1: they yeah.
0: became regular long-standing band members.
1: Yeah. Well, I remember, you know, when I first heard album uh, mm-hmm. by PIL, it had, uh, I remember reading about it in, I wouldn't like musician magazine or something. Probably that, Steve. I incredible performance on that album. Mm-hmm. Uh, ginger Saddam- Baker, ginger Baker and Tony Williams, both performing drum work on that. And, they both said in interviews they don't remember what songs or which part they're playing on. But I mean, if you're yeah. if you're an acute listener, you can pick out. I can pick out. I can pick out the Ginger Baker stuff better than I can the Tony Williams stuff. Steve
0: Williams stuff, right? Yeah. Steve Vai for a side. He had stated up until that point when he was interviewed a year or two later, he thought that was the best work he had ever done. Oh yeah, masterful, masterful. It's still one of my favorites of all yeah,
1: time. Yeah, like a buzzsaw amazing. Yes. All right, so now, so let's get into your triumvirate. The triumvirate
0: would be, as I said, it's close. It would have been Nevermind the Bollocks.
1: Oh, the so, Sex Pistols, sure.
0: It To me, that was something I'd never heard. Yeah. Um. And, and the, granted, I didn't hear it immediately when it came out. Heard it on the periphery due to my sister being quite a bit older than me. Yeah, she was she a was punk per- rocker. She was an original punk, but she, being at that age... Was a first at the the front of the glam scene. Uh, she was the yeah. original Beatles fan. She was she was into the whole Bowie glam scene in the early seventies, in the mid seventies, and it went to punk and then disco and all that. Yeah, um, uh, all of those genres, if you will. Yeah,
1: the trends. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny about uh, Nevermind the Bullocks, it was it was it was legendary before it even hit the states because we had right. seen all the stuff all the coverage they were on Tom Snyder the Sex yes. Pistols were they there was uh, 20 20 and 60 minutes uh, the, episodes the great fear. yeah it dedicated was. to you know the destruction of music and its and yeah. i remember and, when i first bought that album it was at a record store i think i bought it at orland park mall and that was one of the first albums that i got home listened to it all the way through with headphones on took the headphones off because my head was pounding put mm-hmm. it back on listen to it twice in, in in complete entirety and you're right that was just like this is the future of music
0: it was and it and it, to me it was something that was created some say it was manufactured i i tend to disagree then again wasn't there but i will state that it was a complete change and it was a very abrupt um, in your face approach to music yeah uh, as i saw in an interview once some journalist who was in great britain stated when he had seen the sex pistols on tv and they did uh, Anarchy in the uk was he goes when the song opens up because you were afraid they were going to jump through the TV at
1: you. Yeah, right. And, and or at and least I, spit at you.
0: Well, yes. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or blow
1: snots or something. Yeah, yeah something yeah. fun.
0: Yeah, and and, and he goes because you're in your TV because you're in your, you're in a your family and watching on your TV because and you had this fear you were afraid of them. I'm like, and to me that was something that I had not seen until that point. Now, granted, I didn't see this until the early '80s, a few years after the album came out. I was still going through my phases of whatever at the time. I think I was still in my yes era when they came out. Mm So I wasn't listening as much. But when I listened to it, it was earth shattering. And it was truly, it changed me as far as listening to music and what I. Found a niche in uh, what oh, i yeah. found loving
1: and there well. was the anti-yes. it was the anti yes it
0: was the anti-pink floyd
1: yeah it was exactly. something we had never ever heard before and it was angry and it was energetic and it was yes. like you said it was dangerous there was something it was, like it, was, it
0: the, was political it was socially conscious it was a lot of things
1: yeah these guys would these guys would just as soon stab you as play music for you yeah you're right
0: in that same vein Uh, we talked about earlier heavy metal for me, it was injustice for all by Metallica
1: Metallica. Yeah. Uh,
0: Now, not granted. Some will argue and they sure. And I don't disagree with it, that they'll state, some will state that, you know, ride the lightning or master of puppets is a better album. Fine. You can argue that. But for me, it was, when I listened to injustice for all, it was complete. Now the the structure i would always i used to argue that i didn't like the choppiness and the changes in tempo the abrupt changes in tempo i liked that flowing i used to like that flowing uh, approach to music where it was trans you know where things would just slowly build and mm-hmm. come to a decrease and then i heard this and
1: it was different multiple crescendos in metallica's changes, music
0: just exactly and and i i loved it i was like as much as i claimed and it felt truly really not claimed but i did feel i didn't like that approach i heard it when they did it yeah okay was, it changed something about what i listened to in music and not only that the lyrical content as you know and i we have always talked i've always been drawn to lyrics
1: yeah
0: um Hell, you bought me a poetry book for one year. My, did it, well, my, I still have it to this day.
1: Yeah, we're lovers of words, and and I've always said if you're going to put words on a song, do them. You know, right. do, give it give it as much as you did the the music. That's my biggest yeah. problem. If I could go off on a tangent with the band Primus, I think. <laughs> well, but seriously, I think Primus musically is from another another world these guys are amazing and beautiful playing but mm-hmm. some of the goofy ass lyrics and the uh, he just i don't i don't know they're inconsequential I, they're, they're inconsequential yeah, yeah and and it's the same thing with the band fish now i'm not the biggest fan but i'm not going to argue that they're virtuosos and i i've often listened to their lyrics that become kind of smug and And winky you know they kind of wink at you and i hate that i i I, Um, you know if you're gonna write lyrics write lyrics and again i'm not that familiar with fish um i understand i did have a fun time with trey anastasio one day but that's a different story for a different podcast it's
0: a different and different group meeting too i'm sure
1: yes indeed
0: Uh, (laughs) uh, with for me it was a the music the way it was constructed it was well put together in spite of the fact they turned down the bass a little bit too much for my liking a lot yeah too
1: much the bass is almost missing on that album
0: yes I did hear a re-release what somebody put out there where they increased it it still it sounded great it sounded great the other way too though in my opinion yeah um, but the the, the the lyrical content the different the different subjects which I thought were outstanding um, from ecology to freedom of speech to the justice system to just complete uh, utter despair regarding the remnants of war and what it does. Uh, It was just so well done.
1: Uh, Yeah. You know, and the thing about Hatfield is he's a great lyricist, or he was. And then I watched that that documentary. They ought to sue themselves for letting that thing come out. Some kind of monster.
0: Yes. Because they look
1: like a bunch of Pussies. And it's like, would you stop already? And it's, when they're writing the lyrics together and they have that killer guitar player, what's that kid's name? Kid. Kid. He's probably 60 years old, but he looks yeah, like a he's kid. Older,
0: Kirk Hammett. He's older than we are. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Kirk Hammett. He's trying to write lyrics and, and you got Dodo Bird, Lars trying to write lyrics. It's like, what are you doing? And the lyrics are awful. And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, Hatfield, that's some of the, his greatest attributes are his lyric writing and the depth that he and yes i you know i've tried to listen to that album what they were making during the what is that saint, saint anger yeah and it's 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 garbage and and here's the thing i i never i've never been the biggest metallica fan i i love their stuff up until about um the black album and 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 I, and I like that you know the metallic album. It's fine, but it it, it changed their the way that they were doing things and and, and you know and, and like like you know you're into a band and then you go off into some other things. But like Master yes. of Puppets and, and Justice for All and that first album I love and yes. yeah and Ride the Lightning. I like all those records. Sure, of course. Um, yeah.
0: yeah it, to me, it was and the thing was for me it was listening and I think this is uh, up and through the mid '80s i was following more of the punk scene so it was it wasn't just say sex pistols it was the dead kennedys it was black flag it was these other bands that i was listening to a lot of it was lyrically driven of course Um, you weren't talking virtuosos on their and their respective instruments and it was also bands like public image limit obviously because i really started to enjoy their music which is obviously not punk it was a mixture of things yeah it was always always,
1: surprising it was always wonderful Yeah,
0: as as a quote and a song never the same thing twice that's why I like them so much Um, so I was listening to them a lot more and then and Justice For All came out now I had already loved certain metal bands I had loved Iron Maiden uh, Number of the Beast almost made this album almost made this list because of how well done that album was with the Mm. different subject material but then I went through a period where you know, I'm just gonna stick that on the side. I'm not following I just I couldn't find at that moment enough to keep me interested in other metal bands at that time. That's yeah. that's well, me. Iron I,
1: Maiden is one of those bands for me that they're so prolific that you're gonna get some stuff that doesn't hit, you know. Yeah, There's course. gonna be some misses, but boy, when it's they hit heavy. when they I hit love, holy shit.
0: A yes. la bowie which is what we talked about. Yeah. But and even even funny.
1: even Bowie's clunkers are better, better than 90% of the music out there. And exactly. I you know, you and I in my blog that's right. also available at miketomino.com. Um thanks for the opportunity to plug. Uh we were talking about our favorite Bowie songs on the anniversary of his death and there were so many like you know you went back afterwards oh i forgot oh i forgot that one and i forgot to put the tin machine stuff on there because that right. to me was amazing stuff and i would have loved yes. to have seen them have done a third album you know sure of course yeah but anyway so yeah. now we got we got two records and what's the third one in your trio uh,
0: different genre altogether it's no surprise uh, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back Public Enemy. A
1: public Enemy. Yeah,
0: that um, to me is one of the greatest. And, and again, people can criticize whatever. I just thought it was an absolutely genre changing.
1: Yeah.
0: Out- composition.
1: One hundred percent fearless. That record was, and one hundred percent honest. And the thing that I, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a big hip hop, hip hop. Ologist, hip hopologist. How Did there I coin go. that phrase? But I, I, um, I do own a lot of hip hop, mostly classic stuff. You know, Wu Tang, N.W.A., stuff like that. Uh, Public Enemy. And the thing that I notice about them, you talk about being lyrical driven. That's that was it because the production is extremely sparse on those albums. Some of it is. Uh, like, the, the, I, I, let me let me change that. Not the, not the production itself, but the musical. Uh, element of it that's that's intertwined is almost second to the vocals
0: it it, it can be yes and and, you know but it was they found a groove you liked it you threw it in that's that's fine their follow-up album fear of a black planet had much better i thought music included Hmm. in it um it it was it, it was a better it was a different groove, granted, it was still, uh, but it was a better, you were sampling better music there. yeah. I mean, and for that reason, when you talk about changing, you know, people will use Paul's Boutique, that you couldn't even make that album today by the Beastie Boys, because of all the sampling they did, you know, they couldn't afford to do it. No, yeah, you sport. couldn't afford um, it, yeah. Um, but to me, it was something, Fear of a Black Planet. Uh, I had not even, I knew of the band at first. I had read an interview, I think in Spin Magazine, with chuck d and just by reading his interview before i even heard their music and they already had another album out uh but i just didn't listen to it yet i was just really wasn't even getting into rap just yet uh but i remember reading his interview and i was absolutely enthralled with yeah. his what he had to say and it beyond it went beyond the political landscape and the social landscape, and it went into music itself. And the guy was just as we are—was Gormandizers We just absorb the music. We just devour it. Yeah, that's what he was. He was a huge fan of punk and rap and uh, and, and heavy metal. He loved all that stuff. And he could talk to him, talk about it at nauseum. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's it's
1: it's funny that the best artists are often extremely diverse in their taste. You make me think of Dwight Yoakam, which is rare. It's rare that you mention Dwight Yoakam in a discussion with public enemy, but right. Dwight Yoakam country artist, obviously
0: yes, an actor,
1: but his knowledge of music and I'm talking every genre, punk, rap, rock, classic rock, rockabilly, classical sure. is so immense that I would love to just sit and hang with him and talk, talk about music. Talk music. music. And it's funny that you mentioned that you read an interview because oftentimes that's what, you know, leads me into uh, checking out stuff. I'll read an interview with someone and find out what their approach to their art is. And then it it makes it, it makes the, the initial experience even, even uh, richer because you're, Mm -hmm. you're, you're realizing what you've already read about them. Yeah.
0: Yes. And, and listening to, if you listen to that album, the, the, the some of the let's just say beyond the lyrical content which was in in my opinion just unbelievable it was just even the the music selections that they made and a level of the production quality the 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 volume the very in your face the bombastic approach they took yeah uh, similar to the sex pistols which was this oh, it's an almost over the top sound you you have to go back and go what the hell was that
1: yeah dense yeah they,
0: what was that noise or what was the sound or what was the sampler using or what the hell did you just say? Common, common tool used with listening to sex pistols music when it came out was what the hell did I just say?
1: Yeah. Um, well, you and I, we've often uh, been there to introduce each other because we're such, like you said, we, we just consume music and art and books and, 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 and movies right. and stuff. And I, I like to think that I introduced you to death metal and you introduced me to rap and hip hop.
0: Right. And, Fair enough. Fair enough. And then I, just, for me, death metal. I
1: just, for me, it's. Well, you're fanatical that, with, yeah, with with all the dark, and, and I have I have a ton of black and dark and whatever yeah, heavy sure. music. But I remember bringing the album uh, Death. I can't remember the band was Death, and and oh, what man, was what was the name of the album? Uh,
0: the album you told me about was um, Symbolic.
1: Symbolic, and, and I made you listen to it. I said, listen not only not not only listen to the guitar playing here but listen to this guy on the drums Gene Hoglin and boy we were blown away by that
0: exactly and that's for me that's where it started for me was getting into death metal and the other forms of extreme metal i.e. black metal
1: yeah such and you turned true. me on to the ghetto boys and public enemy and, and stuff NWA like that. And NWA, tea. Yeah. And I was like, I was like totally into it because at the time I had worked, I was working at a record promoter in Chicago and we would get all these records from ice tea and stuff. And I, and I would just leave them at my office until you started, I get in your car and you'd be playing these. And i would be like, what the hell is this? And then I, was like, I got that album at work, you know? And yeah, yeah. Ice tea is an underrated, uh, I love
0: them. Hip hop artists. To me, it, it, to me, the other—if uh, uh, I were to put another album on here, that would have been under the rap genre. Would have been Ice T's "Freedom of Speech," or also known as the Iceberg.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> is that the out, one that starts out with the uh, Black Sabbath sample? Yes. Yeah, that's the a great Black album Sabbath
0: with uh, with Ella Biafra on it. Yes, that is the album, and to me, that was almost that. It, had it not been for "It Takes a Nation of Millions that album would have been on there for me. It, it, that's how much I love that album.
1: Yeah, I've always liked. Oh. I've always liked Ice T. He yes. um, he seems was, intelligent.
0: He is very. He's an intelligent cat. It, people may or may not always agree with him. Loved him. He is also another music junkie. Yeah, it, that's the best way I can describe it. He like us. I'm. Just, I was describe myself as a music junkie.
1: Oh Yeah. That's
0: a, I have no talent, I have no abilities, I just absorb
1: it. Um, Well, with your time off, you should learn how to play guitar or piano or something. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) Hey, let me ask you a question. Now, you you did three bands, or three albums, did you do the other... Yes. For the homework assignment. Okay. So, so let's get on to uh, the book that, you know, we grew up reading books, you know, whatever I grew up reading magazines mostly. And then high school gave us now our high school curriculum had, you know, we had to read a book every month and then you get tested on it. And we read like all the Kurt Vonnegut books, which were, they were great. Well, you, yeah. And of mice and men and grapes of wrath. And and that turned me into a Steinbeck uh, fan for Mm -hmm. life. But what was the book that you read and you said, "Oh, okay, this is a whole different way."
0: Um, I again chose three, as far as from a strict, straight up artistic standpoint. So you've you always know, been
1: was, a you've always been an overachiever. That's why you graduated yeah. what second in your class, not that high,
0: but in DePaul. Okay. No, not not at DePaul, but uh, in high school I was in the top couple, whatever. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> DePaul I did really well too. But yeah, they're, they're, uh, but.
1: Um, <laughs> but you all. This is now the kids. This is why Marty was told to pick out a game changer in music, books, and film, and he went. Now he's getting extra credit because he went to three. <laughs> so you're right. triumphant of books. Um, it would be the first one was straight up art, and I didn't. I went
0: since I went to an outstanding. What was an outstanding academic high school? They gave me a lot of the classics, so that's where I tend to go to. Although this out this uh book wasn't on the curricula it was uh we read other stuff by this artist uh, and um i read it later animal farm
1: george orwell's animal farm yeah
0: it it was the 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 way it a subject material great um you know i concepts of con, uh, communism slash socialism versus capitalism then you start getting into uh it's perversion what it turns into it's all sure, the it, corruption
1: it, of it all yeah the
0: corruption of and to me it was i loved it um it was one of those things that i when i still had a little bit of time to read professionally which that long went away um but i remember reading it on the train ride back in and for work i can just remember visually when they just certain scenes that were critical scenes and just the way he described them, I would get so engrossed, more so than any other book that I think that I had read. Yeah. That I could see everything in front of me and the scenes that were supposed to make you uneasy, I was terrorized by. Yeah. And um, it, it was outstanding. You know, granted, favorite writer of all time, Shakespeare. Because again, the classics,
1: that's what I was raised with. You can't um, beat but, Billy. And, you know, you go back to Animal Farm and having read that in high school. I was able to make the leap between, okay, this is a, this is a study in the dynamics of class structure and, oh, look, Roger Waters did something similar in the Pink Floyd album animals. You know, it was kind of uh, I mean, obviously it was influenced. Right.
0: Exactly. Great point. And I loved it. It was, um, it, it was to me, it was, it was one of the few books that I read that, I was fully engrossed and again it's a short novel it was a fairly simplistic novel but it really wasn't this it, was, it doesn't have to be an 800 page novel to be engrossing
1: oh right um,
0: quite the opposite actually I think um, there was only another book that I visually could see things it was like Great Expectations by Dickens uh, quite the other end you know that's a biggie books. yeah, yeah that's a biggie. Um, but it was one of those books and it didn't make my list here but it was that was one of those books that you know, I read in two nights um yeah just um it was outstanding. But
1: yeah. Well books don't have to be yeah books don't, I mean that doesn't merit a but- great book whether the length because I I read uh Ayn Rand's Anthem and it's like a pamphlet but it was enough mm-hmm. to give me a sense of self that has stayed with me to this day. Right.
0: Well here now the other two books I did write, and I hope this qualifies they're not so much um
1: Are we going back to Hustler magazine?
0: well um,
1: as long hunt. as it's an anthology the best of hustler then it's a book
0: okay there you go um, going to say beaver hunt but okay beaver hunt um,
1: the best of beaver hunt
0: um but uh i got youth and art that was actually a pretty good one too there but there you um, go <laughs> yeah it's not nothing wrong once philosopher twice a felon
1: there you go um, so wait we have we have uh animal farm what's next
0: um The other two were not so much, uh, they're not, um, they're not works of fiction. That's fine. Uh, Yeah. That's okay. That qualifies. Um, read this in high school. When bad things happen to good people. Uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner. Um, for me, got a chance to see him, met him, uh, when I was in high school, got him to sign my book, Passed that book around so many times to people. Um, what it helped me with philosophically was how to maybe comfort others. As you know, I am an atheist. Pretty much I figured that out fairly early on in my my life. Fairly early on. But nonetheless, it gave me a way of looking at things to, whilst I don't necessarily obviously believe, I don't believe in a deity, I do know that the vast majority of people do? And it matters to so many people. It matters to most. They hold it sacred. It is sacred to many. What this book helped me with was, and it was going through a period of time when I was wondering about God. At this point, I was like, nah, I guess I believe, blah, 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 whatever. I was battling my own concerns. But it taught me in a way, a way to work with others, comfort others when they themselves were questioning. Uh, people I've worked with, close friends, my own wife, when she would question when we would go through hard times, she specifically, we're going through very tough times in life. Um, she would question, you know, her own faith and question the, you know, the how could God let this happen type thing, like most people do. Almost everyone does. And I remember leaning back on this and what I learned from here to kind of get her through and others as well. To say, you know what? Hold on to those things that are sacred. Don't put this blame on your so-called God. Don't do that to him or her. uh, Just because things aren't working out. And from a comfort standpoint, I've been able to help assuage people's concerns. Because they, and again, knowing your audience, knowing who, what they believed in, what they held sacred, I didn't want them to just throw away their own beliefs because things were not going well, and in some cases extremely not well.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the thing about faith is uh, whether you believe in a specific religion or whether you believe in uh, nothing or if you believe mm-hmm. that this is a fluke of the universe or if you believe mm-hmm. in some sort of higher power or, mm-hmm. or whether or not it recognizes us, what it brings me down to is my ideas about why we're here and what we go through are personal. And Mm -hmm. so that's why organized religion could never be something that I seek. Mm -hmm. However, I, whether someone believes in a faith or they don't believe we all have to believe at some point in our lives in hope. I think that's the one thing that we can all share, whether we're, uh mm-hmm. whether we're an evangelical or jewish or muslim or atheist or agnostic or whatever at some point in order to be human and in order to interact with people who go through ups and downs and mm-hmm. with ourselves no matter what we face you have got to we have to believe in hope there's a reason to continue and so yeah that that's a that is a good that's a good book so what's third I- on your list
0: <laughs> well <laughs> the other end of that uh Anton LaVey's satanic bible
1: the satanic bible which got passed around every catholic high school because that was that was the great act of rebellion it,
0: it was verboten right yeah and I myself didn't read it till many years later uh many many years later but again it's from a philosophical standpoint it, it yeah it's it's it reinforced I guess who or gave me it took me to another step in my evolution it has nothing to do with believing in Satan either as you know as well as I do
1: um, it no is, and, and the it, thing about the thing about um, Anton LaVey it, it, and having read that book and, and read much about him and studied him a little bit I mean I don't find him that interesting but no. he um, he was a bit of a charlatan and a P.T. Barnum and uh, a he was a polemicist, and he also a lot of the stuff that he wrote in that book and in his subsequent books, um, I found reflected a lot of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Yeah,
0: I know. There's 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 the debate on that too, and I've thought about that too.
1: I think he's. T- uh, I think I I know that he read her before he wrote that book. Sure. Um, well, yeah, sure. but but it was. And 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 beyond that, it's a fun book.
0: Mm-hmm. For that, I would say not hard to believe. Uh, has having having read it yourself, I love the book. From again philosophical standpoint of how to deal with people, there are things that I picked up in that book. Yeah, that my daily life of dealing with people that you know my friends and or family of how to deal with them yes and there's nothing to do, and there's nothing to do with religion it's just
1: well the great up. the great fuck takeaway up. for me with the satanic bible was yes. the recognition of psychic vampires yes. and yes. that to me that was a big eye-opener when i was a kid and i read that and he details those people who suck the energy out of your life, life. Exactly. and impose their and impose their reality on yours And once I had read that, and again, I was in high school when I first read that because it was very, you know, verboten. It was forbidden that we read this We get kicked out of school. And having read it from that moment on, I was aware I had a radar for people who were psychic vampires to this day. (laughs) And it was a decision for me then to not be a people pleaser that I was going to be in charge of my own life. And I was going to regard people on my own terms. And that boy, that gave us a great questioning of authority uh, aspect to my life that has stayed to this day.
0: Right. To me, it was, I could just remember not only again, dealing with personal life. uh, I did it with work a lot uh, with people that worked for me. Um, I could just remember people would always that I worked at and in finance. Yeah, um, Accounting and finance, uh, treasury funds, all that stuff. Whereas people would come up to me who worked for me were so bothered by so-and-so in the operations side was having problems because they weren't, you know, they were, in their in my person's opinion, oh, they're just being disrespectful and disregarding all this stuff I'm putting in and I'm trying to tell them and this, that, and the other thing. They took it as a personal attack and at a, at a personal front. And I reminded them, and this I kind of leaned back on what I learned, uh, the concept of solipsism, which was yeah, it is absolutely wrong to assume people think like you do. Right. It is, it is ver- it, you, I used the word verboten earlier. It is verboten. You are not allowed to do that.
1: Well, look at you, the world we're living in. That's the way it's working. It's a, that's that's it, it, that's the it, psyop now, baby. And
0: and the thing is, you cannot assume people think like you do. Some do, some don't. And I remember sitting there working with this person who. Was, uh, very smart brilliant woman but was easily offended because she was one of those people who was always marginalized throughout her life and i looked at her i said look did you ever think maybe they're not answering the way you expect them to it's just maybe they just don't get it maybe they're not thinking i can guarantee you they don't think like you do matter of fact they may get to the answer that you get to but it's going to take them a little bit longer, not because they're not smart, as smart as you, maybe because their thought process is different, where you're going A, B, C, D. Maybe for them, they're going A to D to R to Q to L to back and back to C. But they're getting there. But that's just how their mind works.
1: Wow, you're making me think of a song by Rush in the end. Okay. From the Fly By Night album. It just popped into my head when you said that. Uh, I can see what you mean. It just takes me longer. I can feel yes, what you it, feel. It just makes you stronger. There you go. You can take not, me far. Oh, I can't do my Getty Lee. Okay. Yes. So, um, so those are your, is that the second book or the third?
0: It was third. Satanic Bible is three. All right. Now we're
1: moving two. on to movies with overachiever Marty J, who is a uh, part of the panel here.
0: Um, first note, actually none of these three movies make my top favorite films of all time, but they are so important and important to me. And looked at things differently, and, and, and they just say they would just miss say like my top five or ten, maybe top ten. Um, not let me see guess. if I,
1: let me see if I can guess them. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, let me think here. Yeah, you're the film true film buff. So. All right, so three movies now. Now describe them again. Three movies that you. That you love. Okay, Happy Gilmore. Um, let's <laughs> Zookeeper.
0: see Zookeeper. Zookeeper,
1: <laughs> yes. And uh of course Tom Bunny. No. Yes. You but no, I was gonna guess The Hot Chick with Rob Schneider. But I you know, I may be wrong. So three movies, yeah, these are the three game changers from RDJ. Uh Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead was a great movie, and you talk about a groundbreaking horror film and a film that took and for me was seeing that film. It was social commentary. It was fear of annihilation, and it was something that hadn't really been touched upon since no. the fifties sci-fi stuff. With you know the yes. with, with the metaphor being you know the the Red Scare uh, the, the, yeah, uh, being f- being f- you know flying saucers. <laughs> yeah, R- Night Living Day, great movie.
0: It is an iconic film. Like is I forget one of the, one one at least one of the Ivy League schools dedicate an entire semester to just that. Uh, I think it was Harvard. That's one of their studies. You can do a class on just that
1: movie. I'd like to get a master's in it. There you go. <laughs> I have a I have a PhD in Night of the Living Dead analysis. Exactly. You know, I had I had the opportunity of walking down into... I was vacationing. Actually, I was meeting with an agent in 1998 in, the, in New York City. Uh, this was back when my career was on an upswing. You remember those days, don't you, Marty? Uh, and um, I went downstairs while my wife at the time was getting ready for our day. And George Romero was at the bar and he was having right. a Bloody Mary. And I sat and had two Bloody Marys with him and we discussed movies that he made movies that influenced him. He was a huge Orson Welles fan, if I remember correctly. And he gave me his number. He lived in Florida at the time. And he and I, he and I were, you know, cause you know me, I don't abuse when someone says here, keep in touch. I don't abuse that. So, right. but I did talk to him four or five times uh, throughout the years before he passed away. And I talked to his wife, uh, Chris, they, they had gotten divorced. I believed um, at some point, And that was an awkward phone call, but I, I did keep in touch with him and, uh, was able to pick his brain about some stuff. I never interviewed him on my radio show. We never got around to it, but boy, he was a, what a gentleman he was.
0: Yes. And, and that was, and I remember watching a documentary on the making of that film. And I can just remember one of the most poignant moments was they had just wrapping up filming. It was early in the morning. Um, Sunlight was already out and they hear over the news, they get into their car and they're going, Dr. King was just shot. Mm. And Romero looked at whoever was in the car and he goes, We gotta get this film out. Yeah. And yeah. and then it was just one of those moments that I remember that's one of those moments that
1: just sticks with you. Well, and yeah, that is the that's the, the, the death premise of, of the film. The death of the American dream, yeah. Yeah,
0: and that that was a premise of the film. Yeah, it, 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 you know, and the fact that you had a, a black lead.
1: You know, it's weird it's about that. Who gets killed? They never mention that in the film that he's black. They never make a big deal out of it. It just uh, until the end when obviously he's the survivor and he gets shot, which is God. a giant metaphor, I suppose. But yeah, um, yeah it was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty gut wrenching when I saw it. No pun intended. But it was. Uh, it it <laughs> still, it still packs a wallop. That movie. It is. That was one of the films that I was looking forward to. You know, I always share pieces of art, whether they're music or books or whatever with my daughter. And I remember it was an important day when I sat her down to watch night of the living dead and she loved it. She was four, but still, um, (laughs) <laughs> she wasn't. She wasn't much older. That was the problem. I think she was about ten or eleven, and she watched it. And then she's like, uh, "I said, are you scared?" And she's like, "No, I'm fine." And then two hours later, she ran into my bedroom. And said, "Dad, I keep dreaming about that movie." I was like, "Yeah." And then I probably thought maybe she was a little young to watch that, but maybe. Okay, so yeah. what's the movie number two?
0: The other end of the spectrum, the comedy. You're right. Actually, uh, it's a Zookeeper. No, <laughs> Zookeeper. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, Blazing Saddles.
1: Blazing Saddles. That was a uh, boy. That was a game changer for sure. For uh, um, for cinema.
0: For it. Well, again, same thing. Social commentary. Yeah. Um. I have to even find my fun serious. So that's obvious. You know,
1: what's thing. The thing about Blazing Saddles is there's a contingency of people who don't get it. That it's oh. that it's an indictment on racism. It's the same thing with people who miss Archie Bunker because he said what they thought. You know, it was, it's kind of funny that yeah. uh, people don't really get that it was a satire. But I mean, the majority of people who watch it do. And uh, boy, that was you know the thing about Blazing Saddles is that could have been uh, a great opportunity for Richard Pryor. He was one of the writers on it. Yes, he was. But they cast. Uh, Clevon Little Little got the role because he was responsible and he wasn't uh, doing below while they were doing writing there's actually Mel Brooks told this story where he would he said uh, they would sit down at a table and write scenes and Richard Pryor would just open up a big bag of Coke and uh, everybody kind of just kept their head down and just let him do what he had to do. But when he was approached to be, you know, when he was approached for casting, they said, oh, there's there's no way you're putting Pryor in this role. Mm-hmm. But then Pryor would later go on to become uh, quite lucrative with some uh, hit or miss movies with Gene Wilder. They
0: did okay. They did okay there. It did I okay.
1: Silver Streak was okay. Uh, <laughs> stir Crazy was good. And then uh, the rest of them sucked.
0: Yeah. But, I really expected more when he did stuff with Jackie Gleason with the toy. I had hoped so much for so much more than what that was.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that's, Jackie Gleason talks about how he used to sneak smoking joints with uh, Richard Pryor on the set of the toy. <laughs> because better than that young man. So. Well because Richard Pryor didn't care, you know, he would no. just but but for Jackie he couldn't, you know, having a reputation as being a complete drunk that was acceptable, but People, he, right. getting caught smoking grass in the 70s or 80s that was so, taboo for uh, was for, taboo, for, yeah. for Jackie Gleason. All that right, that so was- uh so Blazing Saddles of course for the obvious reasons it was such a such a uh, hot button topic and it was done in comedic effect so what's right. third on your list is third? it another, is it another uh is it another comedy let me guess uh it's ishtar
0: yeah Fishtar. yeah no um uh, right. so close close um this one was a tough call and 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 it's almost like this is three and or there would be a three a um the film and, and, and as you know we've known each other forever look who's talking to <sighs> you know yeah you,
1: you I know. Why you got to blow this Yeah, in. all right, go ahead.
0: You look at your Christmas gifts on Christmas Eve, too, don't you? <laughs> um, and
1: all right, so this movie means a lot to us, you're saying?
0: No, well, the, no, but you do know that. Not some, well, it does to me. It probably does to you, too. Um, but as you know, I do not like action films. I've never been a fan of them. I don't it just. – they've never been much for me. Crime dramas, things like that, I don't just – never really hit it for me. This film – uh, just missed when you and I and our friends came up with a, a top five list. God, we're dorks. A top five list of films. This just missed my list. This was, would have been number six. It's the movie Heat.
1: Heat. What a great movie.
0: It was. It, it was an action film. Yes, it was. Everyone talks about the great shootout on uh, you know Wilshire or whatever it was, or Flower. I don't, it was on Wilshire, I believe. Um, I can remember. It was one of those films that while still was an action film that was almost, to me, it was almost superfluous. It was so well written. And the dialogue, you could not miss a second of it.
1: Oh, amazing. You it know, was, that's, a, that's a Michael Mann film, and Michael's yes. ear for for authentic dialogue is uh, yes. like no other director. He, of course, the director of the film Thief, which, you know, came out yes. in 1980. One of your favorites. Oh, uh, it's, it's just, in, and Heat is a great movie, and I can't talk about it on the podcast but that movie is based on a friend of ours uncle
0: yes i'm aware yeah you can look at the, you can yeah let people the do their own research i found out where that famous shootout shootout scene was based off of
1: yeah it's crazy stuff and i'll tell you something that movie is an epic and uh here's a here's a little footnote for that hank azaria who yes. is in the scene where they're they're yes. uh, they're asking him about his affair with one of the uh, criminals' yes. wives? It
0: was some, her love interest her side mm-hmm. her side piece was Hanks area.
1: Michael Mann kept telling Pacino, "Hey, you know, I need a little more. I need a little more heat or whatever. I need a little more anger in this." Yes. And the great line, "Because she got a great ass. Great ass. Yes, her yes, head was, is all the way up it. All the way up it." Yes. Was improvised, and that's why, if you look closely in that film, you could see Azaria is just stunned. And like mm-hmm. he's trying to hold back a laugh to not blow the golden, you know, spontaneity of the scene. Yes. But Pacino just improvised that and blew the lid off of it. What a great scene! What a great movie! Yeah, it
0: is. It is. It is a film that, again, whilst it's a crime drama and it's action based,
1: obviously. Yeah, but it's not an action it, film. It's not like Die Hard. It's it's no, more well, of a realistic uh, look at crime. It is,
0: and that's, it was realistic. And but there people, I think people refer to it. As, sometimes people refer to it as almost like an action film because of the shootouts. And there's a number of shootouts in the film, or whatever. But it is.
1: A, yeah, but they're not sensational. They're they're no, more they're
0: not, over the, they're not Die Hard. They're, they're not, done.
1: Like, they're done in reality in, in a real a realism.
0: Right. Not a big blow up. Right. Michael it is. It, 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 it was so well written so well directed very realistic as we said um and it was one of those it was one of those films that I could not bear to miss a second of it saw it at the theaters uh with my wife and I it was our first date after our daughter was born and you, you
1: have to go to the bathroom with a three an hour three an hour movie and so yeah you're holding put, it.
0: it it's exactly it we were both sitting there going we I, I looked I, was like, I can't move shit. I can't move either she go we, we gotta go we can't go were
1: you were you at some point squeezing your wiener so you didn't have to go pee oh god
0: why do you have to name my new band
1: yeah. squeezing my wiener is a good name for a band now let me Here's tell here. you something we're gonna watch heat together the next time we uh we have dinner and, and, squeeze uh, wieners? What? and uh, we're good. gonna squeeze each other's wieners and i'll tell you something else. you got to make that awesome cornbread that you make the the gluten and dairy free cornbread i will you got some great recipes.
0: Um, but the movie Heat, like I said, that made it to me for me. The only other film that it was that was a close toss-up with, I will state Reservoir Dogs. A uh, little little gorier, uh, but Reservoir Ooh. Dogs just missed my list and I had and this was almost to the to point of a coin toss. The reason was in the film Reservoir Dogs because the, the horrible, wonderful trick, it plays on the audience. And I don't mean in an O. Henry kind of way. Um, I mean in a sense that throughout the film, you grow a liking for these murderous criminals. And I found myself, and I'm sure others did too, going, yeah, who the hell is this jerk who traded it, who, who who you know called in on everyone else? You know, Who's the one who betrayed everybody else? And you step back and go, oh, you mean who's the
1: cop? Did his job? Yeah, right. You're what right.
0: What a wonderful trick! I, I can't, uh,
1: I, I can't watch that movie for the Michael Madsen torture scene. Oh, uh, I know. I I, 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 that movie is so over the top. But what a great film! What a great uh, auspicious start for uh, Tarantino's reign.
0: Yes, and 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 that one, like I said, it was a, that one just missed. Uh, I think maybe just because I, I just love the movie Heat more, but, and again, it was. That just that concept alone of why, of how they went about changing your perspective and and gaining an allegiance with basically a bunch of horrible people. Yeah. That, and
1: Stephen Wright, almost, fantastic as the DJ voice. Pardon me. Did you know that was Stephen Wright as the DJ in that movie? Yes, I do. Yeah, That's fantastic I do. I cameo. Him. Yes, yes awesome. in the
0: very beginning, he talks about music, and then yes. Well, thank I you for
1: thank you for being part of the podcast, and uh, boy, what what some some great stuff that you've laid on us, some great insight, and we will. Uh, I know I will be re- revisiting Public Enemy tonight. I'll be putting that on while I do the dishes, and uh, I, I want to watch Heat with you real soon because that is a killer movie. <laughs> as far as Mel Brooks, I don't revisit Blazing Saddles uh, often, and again, this wasn't supposed to be our favorites. This was just game changers. No. Um, but I, I I haven't seen that movie probably in uh 30 years but I know on the blu-ray there's a let me see if I can pull it out here um let me see again okay, we are
0: talking about the, the DVD or the blu-ray right pulling it
1: out yeah the blu-rays uh yeah not not squeezing wieners. wieners okay, okay. Uh, on on the blu-ray that I picked up here I'm looking there's a um there's a uh a pilot for a TV show that was going to be yeah, Black Bart, the 1975 pilot episode of the proposed TV series spin-off. And I watched that when I got the DVD or the Blu-ray. And uh, it it wasn't very good, but it was um, it was interesting to see how are you going to take this movie and turn it into a sitcom? It was it was virtually impossible, but they tried and it's it's kind of stupid. But Michael Mann's directorial style is uh, is so stylistic and beautiful. And he tells the story at a great pace. And I went to see (laughs) the movie Thief. I think it was at the Music Box Theater. Are you getting in a fight there? What's what's going on? No, sound like a karate movie going on. Oh no, no!
0: Unfortunately, that would be uh, my beloved ninja walking by. Oh, hardwood floors. He makes a little noise with his
1: your little claws. dog. Is he growling?
0: No, it's just in white. It's his think It's his toenails. I just clipped them. They still
1: oh, okay. a little loud. So. I went to see, I went to see, I don't know if it was at the Music Box or Piper's Alley, I think. It was one of those theaters where they do, you know, uh, special events. And Michael Mann was going to be there taking questions and answers for the movie Thief. And I, I love that movie. It's one of my all-time favorites. Right. And I remember they had opened it up to question and answer. And you and I were talking about dialogue and the authenticity of it in his films. And I remember asking him that question. He said, yes, you, you in the back. And I said when when watching thief one is drawn into the inside dialogue the the jargon that is not uh hollywood written it's more directly from you know you you get a feel for the authenticity of it this is the way that actual thieves talk um and where did you you know who who consulted you on that and he didn't really hear the question properly because he's like, "Yeah, the dialogue was great," and and he kind of moved on to another. But but I know that he interviewed, and especially for Heat and Thief, he interviewed like real safecrackers safe and mm-hmm. and got all the all the lingo down and all the all the jargon that they use. And it was, I think that's what makes his movie so uh, so yes. rich. When I'm correct in Heat.
0: He not only interviewed, obviously, we'll prof- call it professional crooks uh, also interviewed obviously numerous police officers yeah then.
1: yeah and they, he, they, 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 so
0: it's for not authenticity purposes yes
1: he really is he has michael mann as a uh director has such an exemplary attention to detail that i think that's what makes his movies uh so wonderful and, and, well, and, and, and marty this he, brings us to the first. end of our podcast and yes. uh i want to thank you you are the first of the panel in our ongoing series of game changers so congratulations on that distinct honor
0: oh well thank you I feel so special at least that's what the state of Illinois would classify me as anyway special. and
1: on that note um, thank you for listening <laughs> make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts make sure you hit up Mike for blogs uh, radio archives and more and tell your friends about the Mike Tomano happening And until we meet next week, peace and love.